listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. G'day and welcome to The RC Podcast number 105. Happy New Year. Welcome back. And welcome to you, Jason Wingrove. Happy Mike. New Year, Mike. I'm just in my... I'm just going to take a photo of you. We're allowed to show this photo. You yes. are. The reason that Jason's taking a photo is that when Jason uh, was at the tech penthouse and we were contemplating moving to the tech compound, he said to us about the RC podcast that we should actually have, you know, those things that hang from the ceilings, you know, those things that are like eggs that you would sit in, and then you could just have pods for podcasting. It took me a while, but I managed to track two down, and we are now sitting in the new official RC podcast pods. It is sensational, and as you can sound, can you hear the acoustics? Are so much better. My testicles have been lowered two inches just getting in this chair. So and, literally... And these, they're red, too. They are called the RC... Uh, red RC pods. Pods. And the thing about them is they are incredibly good for audio. So what we have, uh, the setup here at the um, the tech compound is we have rooms that are quite noisy. And we don't normally talk about audio, Jace, but let's start the, yeah. the, the year by including an audio discussion. We normally have a room that's quite um, loud in the sense that it has concrete floor. Concrete um, is the kind of predominant theme through the building. But also uh, we have a lot of glass and between the glass and the concrete floor and the sort of surfaces, it's very... Um, audio insensitive mm. things bounce an untreated all. room so so we had the option of uh, covering the whole room in some kind of uh, sound absorbing stuff but instead of this we went for these pods and actually it's remarkable when you're inside these it's things sensational I, I may drop off how <laughs> much they deaden the sound down <laughs> uh, so they become like little sound uh, proof kind of booths but we have one each on either side of the room, um, and then we have the mics uh, attached to an external device so they don't even get bounced as we swivel in our. And did you see how silent they are when you swivel? Yeah, swivel around. I want a white cat to. I greased to pet. your ball. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, yes. So this now, is anyway, they're sensational. Thank you. I'm, 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 I'm in my happy place. I should also point out that it's uh, Mr. Wingrove's birthday. Happy birthday. So, well, it was your birthday on Friday when we were going to record it this. It was, yes. And I avoided the, uh, apart from having th- too much shit to do on that day, I also embar- uh, avoiding the embarrassment of another broadcast cake event. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, we had to cancel a cake, but we at least got you the tequila. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to kick off the new year um, with actually a sensational rundown. Um, Let me just give you a quick idea of what's going on. Later up in the show, we're going to be talking to... We've got two interviews. Um, Jace, do you want to talk about the first one that you organised? Yeah, I've got... uh, As we sort of hoped uh, last year, touching base with Andre Lascaris, who was the DP on uh, When You Find Me, the uh, Canon C300 short that that kicked off the Canon Imagination um, project, I guess you could say. Really wanted to have a chat with him about the working with uh, Bryce Dallas Howard and with Ron in the background and infrared and the C three hundred itself and just shooting in general. So, uh, great chat with him. Uh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and our second interview is actually with uh, Tom Holman, who's president of Picture Vision in uh, the USA. Now, this uh, is the company that is makes um, a stabilizing rig or nose mount for choppers for filming on. Now, why are we talking to Tom? Well, apart from the fact that uh, the Eclipse is an incredibly cool system, and uh, we'll get into that more later in the show, and really is um, awesome. Uh, this year, uh, as we hope to now continue, FX Guide is going to the Oscars. Um, officially, FX Guide is going to the 
Oscars, and in particular the Tech Oscars, the SciTech Awards, are coming up in the beginning of February. We'll be covering the Oscar coverage, of course, in terms of uh, who wins for best uh, cinematographer as well as uh, visual effects, animation, etc. But we're also going to the Tech Oscars, which I think is really, really important. And um, the Eclipse is the first of our RC what I'm going to call Camera Tech SciTech Award winners. So there are four, um, or actually there are five, I think, interviews now I've done with uh, SciTech Award winners for this year. And the first of these you're going to be hearing today, which is the um, Eclipse, which, as I say, is the electronically stabilized aerial camera platform system. Um, And then in the weeks coming up to the Oscars, we'll go through here on the RC each of the major Camera Tech winners. We have interviews lined up with uh, Ari over the Master Primes, we're also talking to, um, well, I'm not going to give it all away, but just to say each week when you come, we'll have another one of these in-depth discussions with uh, the SciTech Award winners and uh, working our way through up to the Oscars. And we're actually going to LA for the, uh, for the SciTech Awards as well as the VES Awards and other things you the first setter. week of February. You jet setter. <laughs> so we're really, really proud about that. Um, we're also really glad to be saying that we're uh, going to be continuing our uh, policy of trying to put out the RC every two weeks, as we have been for the last couple of months, and that seems to be working out pretty well. Uh, and of course, yep. we are always on Twitter and, and other things, as we say. But let's start the year off by getting into the news. And news from an unexpected quarter this. Um, oh, and there's one other thing. Later in the show, we get to announce the winner of oh, yes, the. Yes, I was just Sony staring at. Uh, yes, I was just staring at the box over there, just thinking, oh, we must do that. The uh, announce the winner of the Vegas Pro competition, and not just winning the Vegas Pro, but uh, the, the, the joy, the inner glow, the, um, uh, the kudos that goes with uh, being selected, having your slogan selected for the RC uh, shirts and, <clears throat> and hats. Or, as I like to say, or, cleverest bastard who sent us in a, uh, uh, <laughs> an entry. And we've actually had over 70 now. Uh, which is just awesome. So thanks so much for that, guys. Excellent. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, so we'll give you a winner of that coming up later in the show. But I've got to say, Jase, one of the themes from that before we get into the news and immediately starting our first rat hole for the year is how much people like rat holes. Yeah, well, there's, there's always this battle with me you know, doing the show with people sort of saying, you know, it's not very structured. And, you know, why, why don't you keep Has anyone ever show? said that? Well, I think in the early days we had a few people ping us and say, you know, you're all over the place. You're all over the shop. And um, What are you doing, Sunshine? <laughs> sort it out. I think, it's, you know, I think as long as we sort of keep it vaguely on, on track with, with industry stuff. I don't think stuff. Our, um, our rat holes are, how can I put this, off, um, off topic rat holes. I mean, they are rat holes in the sense that they're off the running sheet. But they're not rat holes in the sense that uh, they've got nothing to do with what we're talking about. It's not like we have a rat hole that yeah. want to have for breakfast. Keep it to stuff that interests us, because if it interests us, it's going to interest. We're going to we're going to be more interesting to listen to talking about it. I guess. There you go. There you go. Okay, so before we do anything else, let's head to the news desk. And now the RC news. Yeah, well, I guess this. I wasn't really sure whether this actually would happen, whether they would answer the call, but. Nikon finally have uh, come more into the fray and a little bit more sensible approach with their DSLRs when it comes to not just you know uh, not just an impressive camera, but with the launch of the Nikon D4 a couple of days ago, um, really very impressively uh, got into the video video department. We've seen some pretty ridiculous cameras from them. Not ridiculous cameras. D90 I thought was quite. St- ridiculous in its, its video mode was uh, 
was a fine entry point, but uh, Jello was uh, completely unworkable. And yeah, we had uh, a. They've always had a lot we of. We had a Nikon in Japan. Codecs. When we went there with Stu, I'm going to say two years ago, maybe right. a bit longer. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I deemed it to be basically. I mean, no matter what anybody said, I just said it was pretty much unworkable as a camera um, because you just couldn't get anything close to satisfactory. It wasn't just the Jello that was. Um, I think there was complete or partial lack of manual control. Yeah, there was a ton of problems. Weird codex, I think. So, what have we got in the D4? Well, first of all, we've got full frame, which is fantastic. Full frame, there's a full frame, full frame, I'm going to call it uh, the pro sort of more more, uh, form factor, the larger kind of dual dual hand grip sort of setup like a 1DX style body, the higher body than a, like say a 5D. So under the, unlike the C300, this really is this a is DSLR. A DSLR yeah. right. But it's interestingly creeping in on stuff like C300's territory with some of the stuff it does. Uh, so yeah, it's full frame and uh, when it shoots video in video mode, it is shooting full frame video. At 1080p, which I think is also a bit of a first. A lot of the stuff they've been doing has been 720p. Um, you can do 1080p in 30, 25, and 24, and then I think 60p and 50p, you drop down to 720p. So uh, what's interesting, though, is movie clips can be up to 30 minutes, I think. Okay, so now my... You're my, getting to the 29,959 yeah. sort of ridiculous taxation limit. This is the one point that I find... Uh, I can't get to yet unless we get a demo unit to have a test off, which I hope we can, because, in fact, the 5D would say the same thing. But you only get that, and I know from doing it, by actually filming the inside of a lens cap, because unless it's on 100% black, the actual memory runs out before then in terms of disk uh, buffering. No, it's actually the file size, I think, um, peaks out. Anyway, the point is it'll get about, what, 11, 12 minutes on your 5D Mark yeah, II. Exactly. So the, the, the theoretical limit is the... 29 minutes, 59 seconds. Which is that import-export sort of ridiculous taxation limit they put on it. Yeah, for the EU, but but you'll never get there. So whether this actually gets closer to the 29... If it actually got close to the 29 minutes as opposed to a third of that, well, then I would be really impressed. But I don't know that they're claiming three times the the actual in-the-field recording time that you get. Maybe it's doing like clip-stitching, you know, like a lot of cameras will do, start, start bolting four gig files together until you... Yeah, reach reach the you limit. You're going to have to get one and test it. Yeah, I will say though that surely the really big one is the clean HDMI output. Sure, but but game one of the big pain in the asses with 5D is you know the whole 12, 13 minute file thing is ridiculous. Yeah. 30 is a lot more workable. Yeah, but but the 5D will do 29 minutes, 59 yeah, if seconds you if you shoot inside of the lens cap. Oh, good. All right then. Oh, that's good. Problem solved. Well. This is my point, though. My point is that the fact that they're claiming that it can shoot to a maximum of 29.59 doesn't actually mean you can, in the field, actually record someone walking down a street mm. for 29 minutes, 59 seconds. All right. Well, time will tell with this one because as we get down to the end of some of the list, there may be some parts of, of, of the functions of the camera that will relate to that. Um, uh, yeah, clean HDMI. Very interesting. Now, it, I, I believe it to be... 1080p, which is the physical resolution limit of HDMI, yeah. uh, 8-bit 422. So the idea of between for clean HDMI is that pretty much every DSLR so far, you can't get rid of menus, 
you know, clocks, batteries, everything you want to put on, you know, on the screen, you can't get that clean, no, no menu uh, output out of the camera. So this is going to do it and is not some sort of hack. It's designed from the ground up to give you clean HDMI Which output. Which means if you're the makers of Ninja or... Yep. Um, exactly. Or, or something like it. I'll put a link on here. Happy. I think someone's done a... Well, I think there's a... One of the Nikon guys has done a demo showing clean HDMI out and putting it into... Pl- plugging it into uh, a Ninja. So that's terrific. And the other great thing about it is, unlike 5D, is that... Uh, when you plug in HDMI, the rear LCD still works, which is a huge thing because everyone's had to deal with HDMI splitters and routers and things to be able to be able to have an HDMI signal sent somewhere else or sent to your recorder, but also have the ability to actually watch what the hell you're shooting at the camera end. So that's terrific. Monitoring audio via headphone out. Awesome. Very good. On-screen audio levels, so there is little tiny meters there in stereo. I think also, although I don't know the particular specs of it, they have upped the quality of not necessarily just the recording of the audio, but the preamps and the circuitry for the audio in the camera and made it a lot nicer. Because well, it's got stereo in as well, right? Yeah, but but the quality of the uh, recorded um, recorded signal is apparently a, a lot better. They've spent a bit of time making the preamps right, so there's not a lot of anyone who's tried to. There's a definite difference between audio you might record from your sound guy versus if you pump in scratch audio into a 5D. It's it's pretty hissy, and you you know you've got to sort of clean it up to make it make it usable. Uh, Oh, the other thing which I think is, relates maybe to the record times is this new... This is, one, this is the first camera to support this XQD card format, which is a new format from Sony, but other manufacturers are adopting it, and SanDisk and a few others are about to bring out other um, uh, other iterations of the card. It's a... From what I can understand, it's a derivation of the Express card or the S by S card format so it's a shorter it's more it's sort of halfway size between an sd card and a cf card uh much higher um i think uh, up to about 125 megabytes a second read and write uh so it's much higher throughput than a cf card or a uh, sd card which is weird because the camera itself is recording at a lower video rate to the card very odd than the cf card does yeah yeah. We think it's only recording at half the rate of the 5D. We should does. touch on that. Go. Let's go. Pop back to the, the the video format itself. It is H.264, 24 megabits a second, which is pretty much half. Yeah, as you say, the data rate of a 5D, which is about 45 megabyte, megabits a second. Now, as we've seen, proven by other cameras, it's not necessarily the megabits. It's what you do with them. So, yeah, that doesn't again proof will be in the pudding, but <laughs> megabits still count. Yeah, absolutely, it still does. It does count. Hey, what do you think about the ISO on this? Uh, I haven't actually even even looked at it. I'm sure it's like okay. So it's it's up to in the expanded range two hundred and four thousand eight hundred, which I know it's a stupid number, but if you do the math, it's actually eight stops above eight hundred. And this is mm. the only way I care about ISO anymore. I don't even want to hear them quoting these numbers. What I do care is what the base, and no one can ever work it out, and no one ever really tells you what the, what is the base, the you know what is the core base ISO. Okay, well I'm going to say the sensitivity of the chip. Sure, I'm going to take eight hundred as a baseline. Yep. It's not a dumb baseline. No. Um, in the five D, it's certainly before the noise floor starts to increase. 
Um, though in the as you know in the five D it it uh, is around like uh, around 100, 200, 300, 400, mm. 800. Um, yeah. It all bounces around a little bit before the noise floor takes off. So let's call 800 that um, sort of the top of the line normal sensible ISO. This is eight stops above that, but that's in the extended range. In the normal, it's between 100 and 12,800, which if you do the maths is four stops above 800. What the hell delineates normal from extended range, really? What does that mean? If you go past this point... It's going to look. It's the analogy I use across sir. the acceptable. Uh, no, no, the line. analogy I use is you know on a little camera when it'll have optical zoom and then digital zoom. Yeah, and so it ekes out the digital zoom using electronic enhancement. So that's the analogy I put on the ISO is that the ISO range is like a hundred to. Well, it's basically four stops better than eight hundred, but you can push it up to double, like to eight stops. But at that point. Um, you're into like tons of enhancement and image processing to get there. Hmm. Okay. So, what point do they kick in? Does it go to shift over to twelve thousand eight hundred? Okay. But but you see, it's an exponential scale, right? Mm. So, what really matters is stops. So, if you call eight hundred a base, which is what we would normally agree the epic is, for example, and yeah. what we comfortable with on the five D, then the question is, when does the noise floor get out of control? And we don't know that until we test it, but. They're saying normal use is between 100 and 1280. Well, four stops above 800. At least that gives you an idea what we're talking about, right? Like if you're on 800 and you needed to get two more stops, you're not even at the top end of the standard ISO range yet. Yeah. And two stops on 800 is is worth having. Four stops is a hell of a lot. This is where I think they're going to... This is kind of where 5D Mark III will be, I think. <laughs> not in the form factor, but you know. Why do I need a five D Mark III? I mean, apart from lenses, what what is this? What is this? Not got that you want to like? If a Mark III came out tomorrow, mm. and it had these specs, wouldn't you be like buying it? Yeah, yeah, sure. Like, is there anything Absolutely. lacking in this? Because I think this is a pretty kick-ass combination. The only thing I don't like is the recording rate at H two six four. Yeah, you you well. I mean, I can't and see. I can't see a five D Mark III going backwards in its in its in its you know in its data rate. You'd imagine that would be yeah. it would go it would be beyond there a little bit. But, but I mean, if you let's were not like, you know let's you know they've got they now have this other camera to protect this mythical you know four K whatever it's going to be cinema EOS DSLR coming out. So they have to protect that a little bit. Plus, obviously, the C three hundred they have to protect. Yeah, but the that. difference there is that the that it's recording that mythical, you know, unicorn camera is mm. recording higher resolution than nineteen twenty by ten eighty moving. Yeah. Where this is only this and we presume the five D Mark three is going to be an H D kind of resolution. The the downside a little bit is I mean it's a kick ass stills camera. You're gonna to want to buy this for its stills as well. It, this is a six thousand dollar this is up where with the one well, DX. That's, yeah, that's okay? the, that is the kicker punch though, isn't it? At at six grand I mean yeah. how does that price strike you yeah well it's i mean it's 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 six grand's worth of still camera but with a lot of these you know you're really going to want to this is for this is for the um the other half of the aap kind of press guys who want to shoot stuff and have now we've seen what the 5d has done for everybody else but this is the press guys who have got the kit full of kit full of uh, nikon glass and have been sort of left out in the cold a bit in the 5D thing and uh, are still being asked to shoot video while they're shooting, um, while they're shooting uh, the stills on assignment uh, okay, but, but, and but, now going to have the ability to, to do that. I'm coming back to you. Six grand, 
I mean, yeah, we no. For, for, if for what we want to do, which is majority, is like going to be like 70, 30, yeah. 80, 20, whatever usage of video to stills, it's, it's, it's a bit too much money for, it, for what it does. Okay, so if this was a Even 5D Mark III, you'd like all these specs, but priced at what, three, three and a half? Yeah, well, around the same price as what the 5D was before it started to sort of reduce in price, I suppose. Yeah, around the three, 3K for a body um, with, you know, a few of these nice enhancements with the video outs and uh, better, better codecs maybe and less hobbled audio and... Yeah, the HDMI because it seems like we're creeping the opposite mm. way to everything else gets cheaper or faster, and cameras that we want to play with <laughs> seem to be getting more expensive. Because <laughs> hmm. I can remember when we bought the five D Mark II, and when I say we, I mean me. Yeah, we at PhD bought it. Um, a one D seemed too expensive. A seven D seemed awesome. Yeah, but you could go to a five D. That was like a like a believable stretch. I think 6K is a little more than we want to spend. Yeah, for that for that market. This is aimed at people who who are going to make use of the 6 grand's worth of stills camera in there yeah, really. Yeah. But the problem is surely the bigger problem is that Nikon's taken so long to get to this point that the Nikon videographers have all sold their Nikon glass and got Canon glass because they had to move over to 7Ds yeah. or 5Ds. Now, but what uh, I believe is coming is now this is call this the, the 1dx competitor right yeah and okay. again with the 1dx got a lot of great functions they've looked at a few things that the 5d does and sort of changed it a little bit but it is, and it is full frame and it is expensive and it's a it's a stills camera first and video camera next the the 5d the nikon equivalent of the 5d which is the d700 uh i think someone's sneaked a couple of pictures out and then it got whipped off the Nikon site pretty quickly but the D800 uh, from what I understand is on the way which is the new version of the, their full frame yeah. baby cam you know not the full frame baby camera but their their entry level full frame okay so there'll be a 5D more more 5D priced equivalent SLR which I'm presuming we'll have some of this video thought put into it coming as well. So this is not going to be this is not going to be the the only Okay, so you know, what are you prepared offering. to lose to get the price down to three K? Well what you're paying for here is, you know, probably a, a ton of megapixels in stores that you're not going to use. Ten frames per second continuous shooting you know, a lot. You're paying for a lot of press. Okay, so you'd be happy to back off the the stills capability yeah, of this camera. Of course, absolutely. Yeah. But you still want this because this is the same size sensor as the five D. Yeah. But we all want the same size sensor as the five D, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So we don't want to change the sensor size. We're not willing to go to a seven D size sensor. We want this size sensor, less still stuff, half the price. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's okay. Someone there, somewhere, there's a guy in <laughs> well, Japan. Well, there's a lot going, of processing, you bastards. <laughs> but I get, I get. I mean, there's a. It's hard to tell when they bring out, say, D800, whether so. There's a lot of processing in here that they're making use of. Well, we've got these massive processors in to be able to do 16 whatever megapixels a second and be able to do 10 frames a second raw. Um, that yeah. the raw capability that the big press sports guys want. Uh, well, we've got all these processes in there. Let's use that to do better video and 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 do you know put out 
you know clean HDMI outputs and all that sort of stuff. So hopefully, if the if you go with a D eight hundred and maybe slightly less processing and and uh, to process the stills, hopefully the video side of things won't suffer. But you know, I guess we're it's already is suffering. The twenty four you're not going to buy why would you buy for six thousand dollars buy a camera that's going to have comes down to the end to the to the video quality if it's going to have half the bandwidth half the well it's a lot cheaper than a seventeen thousand dollar c300 sure that's just true i suppose you can put yeah you can put um so put it this way it doesn't have six grand you can have 422 clean hdmi 8-bit which you can't, well, there's no of course, 422 the is, in a DSLR. A, but hang on, if you buy a, a Ninja, yeah. that's going to be another grand. True. Seven. Seven. I, I think, like I don't disagree with you. I, I mean, all that happens when I look at this is I think, God, my 5D is good value. Yeah. It's true. You know and I mean? We're all because, used to all the you know, workarounds with it now. <laughs> well, we are. But nevertheless, for a camera that's as old as it is, it's a lot cheaper than this. Produces awesome pictures with some compromises on this. But it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, what we are seeing, though, is the evolution of the ISO stuff. And we've seen how the much... The ISO is true, yeah. We've seen how much, you know, the, the, the C300 is better in chip evolution than, than the F3 is. And um, the this camera is more evolved sort of sensitivity and chip-wise than the 5D will be. And so I think, and I'm hoping that there'll be some more evolution when we go from... MX Epic to Red Dragon. That that what we're going to see is some some chip evolution, some better better noise reduction, higher ISOs without without noise. Crossing fingers. So there's a movie, right? Uh, that you can watch called Why Athletes or something. Yeah, that is sensational. Uh, I think it's just called Why, but it's basically Why Athletes Do What They Do. It's a really nice, really nice little mini doc. Um, uh, Who shot on, it? on athletes. Uh, it's shot by I know because I investigated the guy, um, and I'm forgetting. I'm very. It's very wrong of me. <laughs> how, how, very wrong, not just. That's very wrong. wrong of me too. To, to not credit the actual because Nikon didn't make this stuff. Nikon are not very big. At, have have not been very uh, massively forward on pushing who shot the thing. Just look at this fabulous thing our camera does. So, um, apologies to... All right, well, while you're you sorting that out, um, we will post it in the show notes. But, yeah, look, there doesn't yeah, seem any YouTube much in the way of... Why, why Athletes, it's called. But there doesn't seem any much in the way of rolling shutter artifacts, which is another there's thing. There's not much in the way of pushing rolling shutter artifacts, though. No, no one's actually sort of taking the camera off the truck and go throwing it around. No. No. It's, it, it is, it, it's, it's looking nice, but, again, we're all, we always see this stuff on... YouTube and Vimeo, yeah, exactly. and uh, it's, you know it's already been compressed to less than twenty-four megabits, probably anyway. So a little bit hard to tell. But, right, well, you know, it's beautiful images, gorgeous, gorgeously shot. A really nice entry, you know, showcase of of, of the camera. So, what other news? Sony. Sony. Well, the other, that that was part of what I touched on before, which is the. Um, are you talking about the projector? Yeah, the projector. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think one of the we've got CES starting this week, and we're going to start to see a whole bunch of uh, 4K stuff. Jim's already touched on it, and then deleted what he touched on. But I think to, 2012 will be at least the start of the 4K, a little bit of 4K push from the consumer side of things sony uh, late last year and a little bit more in ces this year have released a 
uh, 4K. They call it's called domestic projector, but it's like fourteen thousand pounds. It's uh, like one nearly two million 20, 000, yen, nearly twenty thousand million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have forty fourteen thousand pounds for a home not, projector. Not to spend on a projector anyway. It's well, no, uh, no. it looks gorgeous, but uh, there's three or four or five or so players now about to or have just launched 4K uh, TVs. Uh, Toshiba and LG uh, launched a couple, and there's a couple more yet to come. And I'm sure we'll, you know, CES literally only in the very, very first few opening moments, uh, we're going to see a bunch more. It's interesting the push behind it when there is virtually no content. I think the idea is to get, at the moment, the idea is to upscale your Blu-rays and make them look nice, and also to make 3D look a little bit better if you're having flickering. You know, whether you've got passive or active glasses to make the 3D look better with a higher resolution screen. But still, the content being popped in, p- pumped through the thing is, at the moment, no better than in terms of what's available to the consumer. There's nothing nothing above 1080p to pump into this. Stuff. I'm, I'm willing to call it now that 3D TVs in the home have been a bit of a flop. I'm I'm, I'm ready to I'm ready to put the money down for one. Are you? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I'm, Get the fuck I'm, out of here. A really? big one. I want a big, I want a 65, but I want to have passive glasses. If they can make the passive glasses work, because I could happily wear those little, you know, plastic sort oh, of Oh, God, I just don't passive. see it. Cause if your I'm screen's big enough, your screen has to be big enough, though. Okay, so two questions, right? Do you have a surround sound system hooked up to your telly? Yeah. Do you, when you sit down to watch something at night, turn the surround sound on? No. Okay, so that's point number one. Neither did I. I didn't do it so much that I disconnected my surround sound system, moved yeah. it to the other side of the room, connected it to a, wait for it, LP player, player, and now I listen to records, and I use my surround sound system much more as an LP player, an LP player, yeah. than I did as a surround sound your, system. Your because I never got off my ass to go and bloody one. switch off everything else and switch. I did it two or three times to show off how cool the subwoofer was. Yeah. And then I stopped doing it. So that's point number one. Point number two. Yeah, I turn it up too loud. And everyone says, turn it down. Says, Come on, it's the movies. If you were at the movies, if you were sitting the movies, in the movies, it would be way louder than this. And, and do you, you ever have your laptop going, on your lap hey, when you're watching down. a movie? Hmm? Do you ever have a laptop on your lap when you're watching a movie? When you're watching TV? No. So you never have your laptop when you're watching TV? No. You're a freaking mutant. <laughs> no. Oh, My, right. No, I, I just, I'm, I'm a... You know, I, I'm a man. I don't do more than one thing at once. I'll just do oh, what, watch TV. I, well, I'm not gonna, who's going to sit there with a laptop and watch TV? If you're sitting there with everybody with a laptop and TV, everyone's going to say, well, aren't you watching this? Are you watching this show? This is a really good show. We wanted to watch it. And you're not watching it or you're like half, you're not really. That's what you do. You half watch it. That's why you do. And most of mm. the time you don't. Why? Okay. If you haven't got a laptop. Which I okay, you're a freak, but lots of people would like have a magazine or a newspaper or something. While you're watching TV, yeah, that people flick through stuff while the TV's on. Mm. Like yeah. it's so rare that I would come into the room and say, "Everybody, quiet. We're going to turn the lights down yeah. and watch this movie on our home TV." But you don't have you? a computer at home. You just have a laptop, right? I have my I have my edit my Mac Pro and stuff is all at home. So I do have a laptop, but I sort of kept it. It basically comes it sits in the bag here and goes for when I'm. You know, traveling <laughs> or on location or in an online or whatever. So just, I don't really, I don't either go into the other room and do stuff or right, well watching something else. control than yeah. me. So it's. I, th- yeah. I say that people uh, don't, I don't do what I do at the cinema at home. I don't switch the lights off. I don't turn on the special sound and I don't sit in the correct chair. 
I sit diagonally in an odd position with a bit of a reflection coming from a lamp that's poorly positioned for television watching, but awesome, so my wife can do like things like sewing that she does. Yeah. And, oh, by the way, I might have a laptop that I'll check out for stuff because something comes up. Like when I watch Rock Quiz or whatever, I'm constantly checking out songs and, oh, I don't remember that song and I'll go and yeah. buy it off iTunes and I'll muck around and do stuff and I'll check out things for the next day and mm. I just don't sit there. And the reason I'm saying all of this is that all of those things would have to not be the case for me to then put on a pair of 3D glasses and watch the program in 3D, yeah. right to the fact that I wouldn't want to like get up and get a cup of tea and nick out for a bit and come back. I mainly want a bigger screen um, and the 3D is kind of like, well, if I'm going to have 3D... Might as well oh, make man. something have plastic. The, the 10% of the time you that you might you know watch a, a 3D movie, maybe. No, I agree. I mean, but screens have to get bigger to make the 3D worthwhile, right? So as more and more, as you as it becomes more... Nowadays, the, the average plasma... So you buy Blu-ray, not, not normal DVD? Well, yeah. Okay. I mean, everyone buys Blu-ray players now because they're so cheap and they don't bother getting a DVD player because yeah, even though they've probably only got 10 Blu-rays Blu in this player, or three Blu-rays. Do you buy Blu-ray DVDs? I buy blue, I'll buy Blu-ray DVDs if they've got more extras than other DVDs and if it's got the, uh, the triple, you know, if it's got the, the DVD in with it or a, a file for... Because I don't have a blu-ray burner or anything so a lot of time i want to take if i want to have a dvd because i want to get make sure i can get you know scenes off it for you reference a, or copy you don't it have a blu-ray or laptop. rip it and put it on the apple tv or whatever i want to be able to do things well, with it right? so blu-ray yeah can't 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 do it so i'll buy a blu-ray if I, if I think it's got more extras and it's got the digital copy in there as well so if you have this really big screen if you're putting on pal you're blowing up you know yeah yeah, 720, whatever. 720 what? by 576, yeah. yeah. Through some very impressive electronics that is, makes 720 look, you know, upscales it. Yeah, right up until the graphics appear. Yeah. I, I, the only exception to this, I will say, is if you were into sports. If you were heavily into sports yeah. and the sports were being broadcast in 3D, then A, I would sit and pay attention to sports because it's live mm. and not be doing other things. And B, I could imagine that you would want to see sports in 3D. I, I myself am not a big sports watcher. Forget the 3D thing, though. But if you if you had a 65, if you were offered a 65-inch TV, well, the 65-inch plasma... is that some of the quality of be, the transmitted sports or whatever is so poor off the cable yeah. that oh, when you up-res it to, like, a huge bloody yeah. screen, it looks crap. I went to a friend's place. I'm really embarrassed to say this. Really, really nice guy. Friend of the family their kids, my kids, I went to, he said, oh, I've got the new bloke room, right? So we go into this room, big ass fucking screen, yeah. right? Bar fridge. I mean, this would be called a pool room for a previous generation. And he turned on the, you know, 400, you know, friggin' inch mega plasma LCD thing. And up comes this sporting event. And I swear, I had to sit on the other side of the room because the aliasing on the text at the bottom for yeah. the score and stuff was so bad. Well, it's a complete numpty, right? I mean, no offence to your friend, but what that's, that's a stupid thing to do, right? If you're going to say, come into my man cave, I'm going to show you this amazing thing, you, you flick on the huge, whatever, 65-inch plasma, right? Do you really just have, you know, just regular old sport or something? You'd have, you'd have 
I well, don't know. He couldn't know that you'd I was going to turn up at that moment to get my daughter. You'd have the Blu-ray in. of, you know, well, you Inception just, like, or something Blu-rays of sporting events just on you know? standby for the odd times that yeah, blokes turn have, up to impress them. Whatever. You'd have, you know, some amazing 1080 I'm just saying, like, up. It's, we're going to do a story about this on FX Guide. This, this shocking degradation of image quality oh, yeah. that happens between mastering and seeing it in your home. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you what, and another then, thing. And being this put is on, the, on the servers for cable, you know. Like, and this is the other thing that's going in the article FX guide, is what they do to bloody commercials. Speaking about, yeah. Mary, you know. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the analog virtual step-downs, not necessarily they are analog, but, you know, I mean, like this sort of huge quality step-down that happens between mastering, like you shoot it really well, mm. you light it really well, you do the post really well, you put this awesome audio on it, and then you fuck it. Because yeah. you put it on some shitty bloody little server that drops the bitrate down to nothing and it aliases and has horrible artifacts. But even if you don't alias sorry, it sometimes, just, even just just compressing it a little bit just to take it from to, to a different file format, the whole colours can change yep. and drain out and become completely desaturated. And You're not seeing jaggies, you're not seeing really, you're not seeing blocks or any other sort of artifacts, but just you notice that the, the colour's not there, you know? It's just... Very, very easy to get get your stuff screwed up. But um, yeah, look, look, uh, food um, companies in the US last year spent thirty two billion dollars on advertising. Car companies fifteen billion. There's like about two or three billion spent on political ads. Okay, a lot yeah. of money is spent on advertising. Yeah, we know that. A spot is going to cost you what three quarters of a million dollars on American Idol and about two and a half million on the Super Bowl. Yeah. And Huge. half a million plus whatever to make it with you yep. know, research and, and stuff. And 75% of the global satellite's revenue in the you know, scheme of things comes from TV. Mm. And of TV, 70% of the revenue of broadcast television in the States anyway comes from ads. Okay, so it's vast amounts of money. Yeah. And yet the quality provided to the people that are funding the programs, funding the stations, funding yeah. the satellites is appallingly yeah. bad. It's still a standard def in much of the world. Standard def, up-res to HD, heavily bit-encoded, screwed imagery. The problem is, you know, freaking infrastructure of... I couldn't believe, even back then, whenever it was, when they started to pollute the, the Sydney, particularly the Australian skyline, with uh, cables for Foxtel, yeah. that they were laying, even back then, whenever it was 10-plus years ago, I could not believe that they were putting copper up. I thought, what are you doing? Why, why copper? Why aren't we sort of looking towards the future, you know? Couldn't you just, even back then, I could see that, you know, it should have been fibre or whatever, anything, something more than just regular old, you know, It just steel. seems like there's this billion-dollar industry... And no one seems to give a rat. I mean, unbelievably so. No one yeah. seems to give a rat's about the actual image quality. Yeah, they keep the master and delivery in the home. Yeah, they keep the infrastructure from back when uh, HD. Everyone thought, well, no one's going to do HD. And um, we've only got thirty or forty channels. And now, you know, the channel, the amount of information coming down the same pipe, the doubled, tripled, whatever the cut, the tripled the channel choices, and on, in. Uh, and then added HD and all the other stuff and radio and so much information coming down the pipe. 1,400 HD channels in the US this, and it's, it's going to go up to about 350% of that, like three and a half times that by as soon as the end of next year. Yeah, but and they're not changing, at least here, they're not doing anything about the infrastructure to how to get it there. You know, you're just pumping newer and newer stuff down 
more and more cramming more and more information down the same old pipe and squeezing it to get it through. So, yeah, the, the viewer is being shat on from a great height by, by people who... But, but why do the advertisers tolerate it? Like, why do they... I mean, if you're paying do, billions of dollars a year in television advertising, why would you not care how it looked? I mean, yeah. you care that you don't print really bad posters and stick them on the wall? Yeah, you care that the billboards are not misspelled? Yep. I'll be in online sessions and say, okay, we're going to master this out, and then I'll just watch in horror as they create a, um, an anamorphic 720 by 5765. And so, well, we've mastered the whole thing. You know, we've shot in HD or, or greater. We've we've onlined it. We've right through to the pipeline. So right at the last very minute where you master out that we drop it down this resolution. Don't the surely surely all all of the stations are you know preening themselves out. Oh, we're now HD and we're now such. We know we're, we're you know they're putting on multiple channels now that the, of you know the seven. Every channel seems to be adding on like these all these sister channels, and all in HD. But and you know, old ladies are having all their TVs switched off and being having to forced to go to HD, but yet we're not still not really. There is no push to master out commercials in HD. Um, it just amazes me that no one even bother asks the question. You know, you just sort of you know on the little rat wheel of do what we do and then just get out of the room and. Well, as long as everybody got nice, fresh. Well, I'm not cap- quite sure how we got down this particular rat hole, but <laughs> well, as long as get, I'm going to yeah. dig us out and say no one really cares. You know, the, like you it. see it in HD and it looks fantastic, great, I love it, wonderful. See ya, bye. Catch okay. you on the next job. Walk out the room and then and then your, your commercial gets put in the mincer. Yeah, you don't horrendous. you don't see the process. Is, you know, horrendous. you don't really stick around till that long until your stuff gets. You know. Hey, anyway, let's let's go to your first interview. Um, because it is a, an incredibly cool spot and it'll cheer me up um, to get away from stuff. And and I, well, I don't know, I haven't heard your interview yet, but you're going to explain what's infrared and not, right? Because this just intrigues the heck out of me. Yeah, the process of how, uh, so we're talking about Andre Lascaris and his um, experiences for shooting the Imaginate Channel's uh, first project, uh, When You Find Me, on the C300. Well, thanks, Andre, for taking the time to speak to us. I know you're away on holiday. I really appreciate you taking the time while you're on a break. Oh, my pleasure. So how did you come to the production? Um, I came to the production really through Bryce. Um, Bryce and her father, Ron, uh, Ron Howard, had come to uh, a screening of a film I did um, back in 2008 called Good Dick. Um, and Good Dick went to Sundance and then it premiered in LA shortly afterwards. Um, and they both came to the screening and, um, Bryce really enjoyed the movie and Ron really enjoyed the movie. And then after the movie, you know, there was a little, you know, drinks and, and cocktails kind of thing. And Bright and, uh, Ron came up to me and he talked to me and he was very complimentary about my work. And, uh, you know, and he was very, very knowledgeable about, you know, every little piece of equipment, equipment that I would think somebody like Ron Howard wouldn't need to know about. Um, And that was kind of that. And I thought to myself, okay, wonderful. It's nice to have the, you know, people like Ron and Bryce appreciate something I've done. And I never really thought about it again. And. <clears throat> about two, well, um, cut to three years later, 
uh, I get a phone call from Bryce um, asking me, you know, um, if she, if I could uh, help her with um, putting a lookbook together and kind of a visual treatment for a feature film she was putting together um, to pitch to the studios. And I said I'd be very happy to work with her on that. And I, we sat down and we kind of poured through photography books, paintings, and kind of movies. And we talked a lot and we spent about a week together kind of putting all of that stuff together. And then she's like, you know, I have this Canon thing that I'm doing later in the year and I'd love to, I'd love to work with you on that. Um, and I said, I'd have, I'd be very happy to work with her. And that was kind of that, that was kind of how it all got started. The When You Find Me project was very much inspired by still photographs submitted to Canon by the public, I believe. Yeah, and, um, that was actually, you know, it's funny to, I, th- I think what was very interesting about the, the Canon project was very much the, the idea that you have to, you know, you all, you're almost given your reference photographs, um, they're, all, they're almost pre-selected before you arrive. Um, so you arrive and there's, you know, there are the eight winning photographs that out of, I think, I, I can't remember the number, but it's, it's a lot of pictures. It's in the thousands. Um, you know, there was a very kind of, it was a long process where, you know, we'd have, I think about, uh, 20 finalists per category and then, they would, you know, out of each category, uh, Ron, mostly Ron, but, you know, he would ask uh, Bryce and and uh, the writer to kind of give him uh, their feedback. And then out of those, they'd pick eight images. And so when I came along, I, you know, I came into the picture, you know, there was eight photographs that you know, had very different looks because they came from very different, you know, photographers and places. Um, but, you know, we had to kind of stitch them together to make a narrative that made sense and, and was engaging and the, the pictures were not really throwaways or, or you know, they were organic and, and they were integral to the story. They, they you know, they it was important for us, for them not to be, uh, you know, uh, like a parlor trick. You know, mm. here here are some photographs, and and you know, okay, we got to get through this photograph to to get on with the story. And I think Dane, the writer, did a fantastic job of kind of putting these photographs together. Um, now, for me, it was it was a very interesting thing because you have different styles. You have all these images of of uh, you know, uh, from different walks of life. And they were also kind of, in my mind, what, what surprised me is that they were a little bit, you know, they were, uh, they were more f- uh, Photoshopped images than I w- was expecting. Mm. Um, you know, they had like, uh, you know, skies, very kind of like detailed skies, you know, multiple exposures compressed into one. Um, so it was very kind of interesting for me to kind of like, you know, I come more from a, a reportage or documentary still background. So for me, that was very kind of 
it surprised me. Uh, it was something that I wasn't expecting, but it was, you know, it's the the project is called Imagination. So I think people kind of like tried to push the envelope a little bit and create something a little bit more otherworldly or or something that had a little bit more of an imaginative spin on it. One of the most striking sequences is the infrared, I guess you call it a dream sequence, I believe. that mm-hmm. We haven't even touched on the C-300, and I think we're actually about to discuss something that wasn't shot on the C-300 either. Right. Um, so, um, you know, we looked at, uh, you know, one of the images that I think, you know, um, struck Ron and Bryce in particular was the, the this image of a of a tree, um, and it has white foliage, and it's up against a very blue, almost night-looking sky. And you know, we looked at this image, and and um, you know, I I'm I was pretty sure it was infrared. Um, and then I did some research. I found the photographer's website, and I you know I looked through their work and there was a lot of infrared and um so you know we we approached canon and we you know we talked to them about doing infrared and they were you know the the problem was that they could not uh they didn't you know the c300 was you know we were working with just a few of their prototype models and um yeah they didn't want to go start hacking their new brand they didn't want to start stripping ir you know ir layers off the chip and things like that so we did some research and we found a um a a canon 5d mark ii that had um had been modified and out of Kentucky, and we rented that, and we had to rent specific older lenses that didn't have as much of an IR blocking coating on them. Right. And um, and then we did a you know a, a lot out of testing. Um, I went out to the actual tree that we were going to be shooting, and I spent the whole day out there uh, with my gaffer, and we just tried different things um we tried for example a polarizer and that was that had fantastic results it kind of you know the sky went almost pitch black in midday um and the tree the tree would pop even wider um and then you know one of our you know, so we figured out you know which what kind of situations look best in terms of um light direction um then we we examined whether we we preferred the way it looked on diffused or harder um we also played with the idea uh we've kind of figured out what we would what we liked in terms of exposure and that would that seemed to be about half a stop over key um it yielded nice healthy results that we could work with and it had this kind of just bloomy quality. Were you using other infrared filters, like the standard, you know, almost pitch black infrared filters as well, or just the fact that you had the uh, the? Uh, it, no, the camera itself inside over the chip had a built-in uh, filter that was blocking uh, all, most of the visible spectrum. Right. So it wasn't just the fact that it had the infrared. The it wasn't just the fact that it had the uh, low pass filter removed. It had another filter built in front of the chip as well. 
Exactly. Okay, so you weren't using any external filters, but there was a uh, some kind of infrared filter in front of the chip that was killing a lot of your exposure. I yes, but actually, surprisingly, you know, um, you know, the reason why why more often than not you have long exposure times in infrared is because there's an an infrared blocking filter in front of the chip. Yeah. And and what that means is that now you're blocking visible light and you're blocking infrared light. So that's why you need to, you know, give it a long time to burn in and actually create an image. Uh, so once you actually strip that infrared, you know, uh, low-pass filter, then, it, it you know, exposure times are pretty, they're not bad. You know, I was shooting pretty much anywhere between, you know, 320 ASA or, you know, maybe 500 at most. Mm-hmm. And and regular, you know, 150th shutters and, and very, very normal like you would shoot with a 5D. You know, nothing, nothing really out of the ordinary. Did the rushes look like the final images or was it a lot of processing to get them to look like what we see in the final cut? Um, the, the rushes were, the rushes come in at this kind of like Terminator red, you know. Uh, they look like, you know, something out of a sci-fi film in terms of, uh, you know, it's very red and, and almost violet at, at times. It, it looks very, uh, it looks very interesting, but it's not really the the look that would match what we had in the photograph. Um, so, um, and there's many ways to treat infrared, but we wanted to go with kind of this almost black and white uh, kind of quality to the image and then bring back, you know, some hues of blue and and create kind of this otherworldly kind of uh, environment that, that in the movie is known as the unknown. And in order to do that, you kind of, it's, it's a several layers of, of processing. You know, you, you kind of, you bring in the image uh, in, in the color correction suite. You kind of white balance it. Um, you you know you neutralize your whites either by using clouds or foliage, and then you really play with the red channel and the blue channel. You kind of like you you bring the red channel to down to zero, and you bring the blues up in the red channel, and then you do the exact opposite and on the blue side. And then because the infrared image has this kind of bloomy quality, you want to kind of, you know, you want to kind of sharpen it just a little bit. Um, um, and then you want to, I think, you know, you want to heighten the contrast just a hair to give it that kind of more, you know, emulsion feel. The infrared, you know, shooting infrared, you know, yeah. film. It has it has that slightly more contrasty quality that we wanted to emulate. Um, okay, and the, and then the the final thing that was actually kind of re- really interesting is is you know the one of the biggest challenges we faced with the infrared was you know seeing veins in people's faces and and, and things like that because it, it it almost create it almost sees through the skin. And you get this kind of translucent quality in people's skin, and particularly with the children that kind of have like 
you know, much younger and kind of cleaner skin, you get this kind of like you, it's almost like you see through their skin on, onto the slight, you know, veins that are underneath the skin. Mm. And so you, we had to, we, we tested all these different makeup and, and really what we ended up with was putting, um, uh, taking a sunblock that had, uh, I think it's zinc in it, uh, and applying that underneath, uh, as a base layer. Uh, below the makeup, and that really kind of toned all that down. It was bad before that. It was pretty unusable, really. Was it just too freaky? Uh, I mean, it, I mean, it would have been know, an interesting look, I guess. <laughs> it, it would have been an interesting look, but you know, um, <laughs> we wanted to avoid people looking a little bit too veiny. Uh, I mean, if you look carefully in the movie, the, you'll 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 see a little bit of it still there. Mm. Um, it's just been minimized a lot. Um, so it was, you know, that was a, a really interesting thing that I, I read about and I thought, mm, you know, it can't be that bad. And then, you know, we did a test we had in our test, we had, you know, one person without the, the sunblock and one person with, and the difference was pretty, pretty remarkable. Uh, well, let's jump to the C300 pretty hard going into a major shoot with uh, some reasonably heavy hitters on set and uh, I guess pre-production camera that's never really been much on a film set before. Yeah, the actually the one of the, you know, uh, working, you know, running up to, you know, the, the beginning of the shoot during prep, we we spoke to Canon and we I asked them, you know, uh, if we could, uh, you know, test the camera. Um, I really wanted to be comfortable with the camera before we showed up on on set for myself, uh, for my gaffer, and uh, my ACs. I, I wanted everybody to kind of be, um, you know, comfortable with it uh, and feel like they were on their second or third day with that camera by the time they showed up on set. And it was impossible to get the camera for us to get the camera it was you know every time we wanted it some you know somebody else was out there shooting with it uh you know they were doing mobius or or you know with vincent laferre or they were doing something else and and you know i was starting to get really nervous because you know a week before the shoot i hadn't had a chance to shoot with a camera i i had only seen the camera held it in my hands but never really uh, had a chance to shoot with it, and uh, you know, <laughs> I, I kept calling and being like, you know, guys, we're going out, and I really, really, really need to like, I just at least like have an hour with it where I can do a few things, um, and also be able to like figure out uh, accessory wise what you know how to yeah. accessorize the camera, what what things it would need to 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 do all the things that we were going to do because it was going to go on a remote control helicopter it was going to you know it was uh, you know it needs all these little risers for the lenses and and all these things so figuring all that out so i i got i started getting really nervous when it was 3 days out and um i finally they put me in touch with tim smith who basically one of the the Canon people that developed the camera and 
and went out with uh, with the cameras on all these shoots. And I called up Tim and I was like, please, I need to just see the camera. And he was like, look, we're doing a checkout out of Claremont. Come and take a look. So we went in, I went in and I had a look at the camera and how they were prepping it. And I, just that made me breathe a huge sigh of relief. Uh, you can't just, do your own no, gear check, but you can come and watch someone else's. Yeah, exactly. Just just <laughs> seeing how you know things fit, and and they had the guys from Red Rock Micro who who were you know on you know building stuff on the fly and and adding different you know accessories to it, and they were very helpful. And I got a chance to talk to them. And so I saw the camera, but still no chance to shoot with it. And um, literally the two days before the shoot, the weekend before the shoot, uh, they were able to give us the camera. And so I went, we went down to a stage and kind of set it up and we did a, uh, a latitude test and we did a you know, ASA to noise test, and we t- made sure that the chips kind of matched. We had three cameras, so making sure that the chips all looked the same. Um, and then we did a, a basic latitude test, um, and we tried out, just saw what, you know, how the rolling shutter reacted and, and, and all of that. And the interesting stuff there was, you know, we, we, figured out that the camera had about 12 stops of latitude at its native ASA of about 850. And that's kind of where the camera, that's, I would say, Tim and I kind of agreed that that was kind of where the camera had its sweet spot. Yeah. Uh, was at 850 ASA. And particularly in log, you were getting about four, four and a half, almost five stops of detail above key and about seven below. And, um, yeah. And, and it, and it really performed, uh, it was you know, really nice in, in the testing. Um, and then, you know, ASA in terms of ASA and noise, um, it, it surprised me because we were able to go, close to 4,000 before I felt it was starting to get, you know, not as clean, um, at least for a narrative kind of story. That's pretty impressive because, yeah, there does seem to be a lot of scenes where you're shooting right on the edge of the light. Is that the case or was it just some nice... Yeah, there was a a lot of that. There's particularly one scene in the movie where the the girls, which is a reference to a picture um, shot kind of at dusk or twilight, um, where the girls run through a field and kind of look back and they're yeah. holding a lantern. Um, and that we shot uh, right at the, the the very end of, of Twilight, um, you know, past, you know, at the very end of Magic Hour. And you know, that was shot at, I mean, the take that they picked, because we we would literally double our ASA almost every take. Yeah, the so light was falling that fast. At, at 200 and then 400 and then 800, you know. Um, I think the take that they picked was at 2,000. And if you look at it, you know, it it holds up well and, and it's a very different kind of noise because, uh, it, you know, it doesn't have that debearing thing going on. So the the actual noise is actually 
it, it has a nicer feel. Um, so what are you used to uh, shooting-wise? What's your normal camera of choice? I mean, I'm usually, I, I, I love to really, I come from a, a background of shooting a lot of film. Um, and I would say if, you know, uh, I would say I use Arri. Um, I like Arri cameras a lot. I love their ergonomics. Um, I, I like their, I think as a, from, because I'm a, uh, I come from kind of a reportage background. I feel like those cameras have that kind of like more, tight, uh, yeah. solid build that I kind of like and they're, they're good on the shoulder and they feel very strong and, and sure they can go into studio mode but their real strength is kind of like, I, I feel like in the field on your shoulder ready to go. Um, and, and digital and wise? I, and digital wise, I mean, I've, I've shot, <laughs> I wouldn't say I have a, favorite digital camera i i mean to me uh i feel that the the really that like when you enter the digital arena for me it becomes all about the lenses um i that's where i like to play um and depending on the camera i like to go and look at glass and, and kind of find the glass that I feel will give that camera a look that that camera hasn't hasn't I haven't seen with that camera, um, and you know, Kayvon at Camtech in in Hollywood has all these fantastic vintage lenses, and it's actually funny because I tried to do that with this. You know, uh, they, you know the mandate from Canon was to use Canon lenses, so. I, I called Kayvon and I was like, okay, I need help. I heard you have these K35 lenses uh, that Canon made uh, a while back, like a, more than like 15 years ago, I think. And, you know, there's these award-winning lenses that I think there's only three sets in the world and all this stuff. And, and uh, I got very excited about being able to use them. And I went down and I played with them and I looked at them and they, they have, I love them. I, I really wanted to use them, but, you know, then, you know, Canon said, look, we have the, these are new CineZooms that we'd love you to use. And I was like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll use those. But they're the, you know, those K35s were, were a really fantastic lens set. They, they, they had, they have a very particular kind of, plain plain feel you know that very canon it feels like everything is you know it's either in focus or it's not and then it has this kind of plainy feel to it which i really enjoyed and they have they have depth but it's it's a very kind of almost still photography depth that i really loved um but we ended up using the two cine zooms um the one is a 14.5 to 60 2.6, uh, T2.6, and the other is a 30 to 300, 2.9 to 3.7, um, which I was very impressed with those lenses. I really, really enjoyed working with them, and they, you know, they have really good operational torque. They, you know, they're just really, I was blown away by those lenses. I really Slower than K35s, though. 
Yes, they're definitely slower, but you know, you are shooting with 850 ASA, so you know, you have you know, you know the the camera's native ASA really helps in terms of like I never really felt that it was hard to light with those lenses or um or anything like that and I felt, you know, for for a narrative for a narrative, you know, uh film um, you, it was nice to work in the, in around the two, eight area or two, eight, you know, four area. I right. felt like it was a, a proper, you know, um, um, F stopped that would be consistent and good for the movie. You know, I felt like shooting shallower than that would be Less traditional. More DSLR. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You've come from an Ari background and you've mm-hmm. shot with the Alexa. I've shot with the Alexa, and I, I, I really like that camera. I, I think it, you know, um, uh, I, you know, it has a, it has a very nice. Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's a filmmaker's uh, digital camera, and, and you know, it has very good kind of uh, uh, ergonomics, and and I, I like the the way. Uh, the camera plays out, but uh, you know, uh, playing, working with a Canon camera was also very, very kind of exciting, and and it's it's amazing to see this little camera kind of, you know, put its money where its mouth is, and and really go out there, and and you know, um, I felt like the C three hundred had a really remarkable color space. Um, that's really what I love about the camera. What was really interesting about that was, you know, when we shot in, in, in log mode, which the Canon log mode, which kind of has like a, it rolls off the highlights a little better. What, what was nice about that is that you had like the contrast range, that you would usually have to deal with in like a day exterior, you know, where you you had let's say people in the, in the shade, and a bright background, or a car interior is a perfect example. Those became surprisingly easy to deal with. Uh, where you know in the past you you really have to kind of like, particularly with digital cameras, you kind of have to get in there and 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 like you know, shape it and add a little bit of light to bring down the, the contrast differential. Um, I felt within log mode, this camera really had a fantastic kind of quality in the highlights that you felt, you felt very safe to kind of like underexpose a little bit and then the highlights held and it just had a very nice quality and then the other wonderful thing about shooting in log mode with with the C three hundred is is that you know it's not this very heavy raw look which is stripped of color and mm. super low con and and you're you're like okay you know your directors are looking at you going what's wrong with the image I don't know why does the image look like this you know uh, what was really nice is that you know with the C three hundred we were able to monitor the whole time in, in you know we lo- we monitored the whole shoot in in log 
um, dailies, you know, people, everybody saw dailies in log and everything was really kind of like, it's easy to work with. It, it has a lighter feel. It's not, you know, it's not super low con. Just help make you look good. It, it definitely helps, you know, uh, makes you look good because it, it looks it looks nice and particularly with all these night night scenes it, it was also you know nice for 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 Bryce to be able to see a little bit into the shadows like the log kind of I think also made her feel safer in terms of like going to a place that's a little bit darker it's funny when you hear people you know uh, we got a phone call from Deluxe that the first time they screened it uh, when we were doing our, our uh, um, DCP, um, they were cheering. You know, it's funny to hear a film lab cheer when they're screening something digital. So, yes, they're meant to be very clinical and very serious. Yeah, they're meant to be very clinical and skeptical, I would say, of, of digital materials. So, um, and, you know, I think that comes from, you know, Canon's, you know, I met I, uh, at the premiere, I met... Uh, one of the the main designers of the camera and he said that you know one of the things they tried to do was canon has a history of be you know having years of making cameras for for still you know film uh so he said you know we took our guys and we did you know we had them create kind of like very specific looks for all the film stocks that you know the still film stocks and motion motion picture film stocks that they really liked, um, and then that's how they built you know their kind of algorithm for the the color space for the camera. So I'm sure the schedule was reasonably challenging. What were some of the filming challenges involved? I think uh, you know some of the bigger challenges involved with the shoot. Uh, were particularly, you know, shooting with the with the kids, uh, um, who, by the way, were the two most incredible little kids I've ever met. The most professional, lovely, charming kids uh, I've ever had the pleasure to work with on set. Um, you know, and we had we had pages and pages of night exterior with kids uh, and we only you know they they're only allowed to be on set for i think uh, 8 hours a day and then and then you know at, during weekdays we you we would have them until 10:30 and sunset was at 7:30 so you'd really only get about 3 hours of of nighttime with them during the week and then during the weekends you'd get till 12 or 12:30 yeah, uh, so you know, having you know, having either three hours or five hours in a day to work with the kids um, to cover a, a healthy page count of night exteriors was was very tricky. Uh, you know, there was very often you know we had to do you know uh, and a night exterior with the kids, uh, for example, the gate, and then pack up company move and doing a night interior at the diner with the grown-ups because the kids were done at midnight. Um, so that posed a lot of, I think, uh, challenges on the schedule and created a lot of, of tricky uh, um, things that we had to deal with. But having a reasonably sensitive um, and, camera in low light uh, probably helped you a little bit with uh, getting, yeah, getting lit pretty a little yeah, bit simpler. Yeah. 
you know, working, having said all that, working with a, you know, with a camera that has a native ASA of 850, we were able to uh, light uh, with using using smaller units, and we were able to, I think, turn around faster and create, you know, uh, create night exteriors that, you know, with with other cameras you might have struggled a little more to create. So that that you know the C three hundred really kind of came to the rescue in terms of of working with the kids and, and having limited shooting hours with them. And just being able to move quick, I guess, with kids. Yeah, um, you know, there's there a, a lot of things. Uh, you know, another thing, you know, another fun thing with the kids was that we tried to be, you know, really in in their personal space uh, with with the cameras, so that you know you feel every their every movement, you feel their every kind of jitter or or you, you almost feel them breathing. You know. Um, and you know, having a small camera that's uh, lightweight uh, really helped with that. It helped create kind of a very uh, proximate feel, emotionally really plugged into the kids, um, which was really lovely, actually. So, how can people see more of your work or get in touch with you? Websites, agents. You can see uh, a lot of my work is 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 kind of up on my website, uh, or at least. You know, uh, bits of it are so that you can see different looks and different feels. AndreLascaris.com, and then uh, my agent uh, is Tara Cromer from Prolific, and uh, she's fantastic. Uh, I love her. Uh, she's she's a, a godsend and a very creative uh, agent um, who really like cares about the material that she provides uh, for her clients and really wants you to to work on what you want to work on so that's you know that's the most you can ask of an agent really excellent well andre best of luck with it thank you so much beautiful images i hope canon and or uh, imagination will um see the light and post the full length thing back up again uh, in the meantime, I'm sure it's probably doing the rounds of the festivals or will start to this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the meantime, best of luck with it. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Okay, that was just awesome, Jace. And okay, so I guess the thing for me is, and I'm sorry to do this to you, dude, but why the hell do you get rid of your 5D, the one that was had the HTML? Part? I know. You could have just I know. done awesome things yeah. like that, man. Yeah. Did you ever have another yeah any gear you want to sell i should have done can you it. ask I me first yeah i should have done it should have had it modded would have been awesome it severely limits what you're going to use for it but i but mean you'll I mean, always even if you even if you run out of use you're never gonna you're always gonna be able to sell something like that uh, even uh, just I must as admit, much i would as love to see that the stuff without the sunscreen on the girl's face that sounds freaky and to interesting. see the veins and things yeah. in the face yeah it would be interesting clearly it was just not disturbing, but clearly it was distracting enough to yeah. want to do all. Well, you know, yeah, it put sort of the goes against the thing stuff. that they were trying to tell. Hey, did you have you shot infrared film? Uh, oh, no, I shot sort of nitrogen bathed film for in the old days. I had to do time lapse before. Um, Tom Lowe had, yeah, had the, had the joy of being able to just do high ISO right. raw stills for time lapse to make film sensitive enough. 
you used to be able, you used to have, I think maybe it was infrared film, but you also then had, you had to bathe it in nitrogen, <laughs> sit it in gas, or you had to almost like bake the film. Pre, 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 I cool think it was, was pre, that? I don't remember the process, but I think you had to pre-sensitize. If you put it in liquid nitrogen, it'd be really brittle, wouldn't it? No, not nitrogen. I think it's something else. It's, uh, Are you trying to get a coal? More of a gas. I think you almost do something prime. You do something with the film, de- pre-sensitizes. I'm trying to remember. I might have to do research that. I know you used about to do something with the film, film because but, if you're doing time lapse, you yeah. know you, the, the film is inc- incredibly. Did you see the guy who did the one year exposure of the thing? Yes, in I Paris? did see. It was a still, right? Yeah, a still. yeah that's right. He exposed on a pinhole camera on a wall a shot of maybe it wasn't Paris, but it was some city across water. It was in the states, like New New England, or it was, yeah, something it was, like that, or Boston. Yeah, and he exposed the shot for an entire year. So what you get is this incredibly ghosty image. I mean, it's it's clear that it's a city. It's clear that the sun moves in the sky at different times of the year. Um, yeah, you can't make out exactly like a logo on a building or anything. Yeah, and you can't make any shadows because all of the camera, all of the sun movements, just completely erases any shadows. All you get is the interesting. It's a, very, a heck of an image, though. Very dreamy. It's it's a very interesting image, and uh, I'll put a link to. I think it was you sent me the. Um, but wouldn't it be cool to like do that because the shot you, you open up your pinhole and then you close the door and lock it? What's really yes. What's really interesting about it is that you don't. He doesn't shoot neg. You no. have to put, because the exposure time for neg is just way too oh, long. Yeah. He uses, it's a pinhole camera, so the exposure is already reduced, but he uses photographic paper. And you never process it, right? Because I think there's something about the fact, because the image is almost there just by... Um, Being exposed for someone? Yeah. So I think what he has to do is he literally takes the photographic paper and scans it. And the pure act of scanning it... Destroys it? Destroys it. So it's like a one, it sits in the camera for a year, and then you get a one-shot deal on oh scanning God, the that. paper. That's so cool. Um, God, I love photography. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting. You get the one-shot deal on being able to scan it. And, got, and the then it's this voice of you, you never know what it's like. And he just does, the, he does lots of these. And, you know, he's had cameras stolen, of course, or whatever, struck by lightning and, and, and you know, or, you know, or, <laughs> ruined, comes or ruined. <laughs> but imagine, I just think that's just amazing. I'd like to rent this apartment for a year. And yeah. <laughs> I want to be really sure that it's got no cockroaches or anything that are going to crawl over this hole in the wall. Yeah, imagine that. Or you bump the camera. You want to stick up the stuff on the wall pretty well. You want it peeling off after... Nine months. Well, you start it, you set it up in Christmas and you bump the camera in November or something. <laughs> well, see, it wouldn't matter so much if you bumped it in November. You just stop. And, yeah, exactly. If you bump it, you just. But, but you, it's yeah. very precise. When you look at the photo, the streaks of the sun, it's. That is fascinating. It's quite isn't it? defined because you can see there's almost. Like, if it was all beautiful sunny days, you'd see it would just be one whole big mess of yellow. But there are streaks because there's probably sunny days, cloudy days, you know, a mix of it. And you do get, you know, individual streaks from... And what I love about that stuff, it's like high-speed photography. Um, When you see it, it makes sense. But I wouldn't have predicted those sun lines the way that they are in the picture before I saw that picture. Once I see it, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But I think the trick is for him is he does a lot of them. He does a lot of them. So that he can not well, fixate. If you do one, one, you just be year, fixating right? on it the whole time. You just be thinking, "Oh my god, that camera! What's happening with it? What's happening?" There? Just do a ton, place them all around, and if you lose a few, whatever, and you know. But yeah, but also you got to get the exposure right because 
Like if you're out by a yeah. small amount over a year, you just end up with a completely burnt picture, right? And then how do you scan it right? I mean, you know, how do you get the scan exposure right? You can't like do a test scan. But also, just, you can't like, even walk into the room with a flashlight to see what you're doing, right? <laughs> like when you come into the room to undo the thing, to stop it. Yeah. But you just see, you know, what kind of, what does he bolt them to and what sort of kind of enclosure is it? Is it like a pelican case with a please do not steal this stuck on it and you bolt it to a i think he bolted it to some sort of you know fishing like a buoy lantern thing some sort of permanent outdoor sort of fixture that you know that was public but maybe high so anyway it's very very clever i'll put i'll put links to that story because it is it is quite 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 clever marvelous stuff yeah so um i want to jump now to our oscar coverage our SciTech oscar coverage uh, and we're going to talk uh, and have a look at the Eclipse camera rig. Now, Jace, what's fascinating about this, as you'll hear in the interview, is uh, I ran into this rig at Cinegear last year, and it had two Alexas in it. We'll put the photo in the show notes. Two Alexas uh, in the same rig in stereo using the Cameron Pace rig. So it's really pretty huge Yeah, right. to be able to put a proper stereo rig in. And that camera rig, as you'll hear in the interview... Um, in the one sphere. Yeah, in the one sphere. Right. So I've got photos of it that I can give you uh, for the show notes. Mm. But uh, also, when I went to Red like six months ago, three, yeah, six months ago, um, well, it was after April, so it must have been May, much longer than that, nine months ago, um, they sh- just showed me a whole bunch of uh, 5K epic footage, which had been shot on a chopper. Lo and behold, this is the footage. Right. And so we're going to give you a link in the show notes also to a video um, in fact, I might even put it on the, the main homepage because I've spoken to Ted at Red and he's happy for us to publish this. This is um, Ted taking the epic up in this Eclipse rig. So we're going to, in the interview, mainly talk about the Eclipse, but I just think it's really funny. There's a great line in the in the video that I quoted, um, which is, it's all glass, no arse. Because when you see the epic sitting in there, there's this huge mother of a lens. <laughs> yeah, and, and virtually and no back end. Just like a, like a bloody great lens. But anyway, the thing is um, engineered for the film industry and as a consequence, I mean, obviously they use this kind of thing in a bunch of different areas, but this is the, the biggest uh, mother load kind of thing. It can take big glass, stereo rigs, as I say, Cameron Pace, and, uh, and has been recognised as such by the Academy. Um, but let's cross to that interview now. Firstly, congratulations on being recognised by the uh, Academy. Um, it's obviously uh, a terrific honour, but also just acknowledges the fact that uh, your system has become both well-known and appreciated by the industry. Yeah, we're, we're, we're very pleased to be you know, part of that elite group. It's, we've, we've had a really good run in the last couple of years with the Eclipse, and uh, it's nice to be appreciated for that. So uh, I've seen some stuff, and we'll get into it in a second, and I, I also... Um, uh, saw the system myself in in LA when I was there a little while ago. But can you describe the system for somebody that hasn't seen it? What makes an eclipse an eclipse? Well, at its core, it's it's a gyro stabilized aerial camera platform. What that means is it's the big round ball on the nose of a helicopter you you see filming. Um, a lot of the local folks they have the the smaller version for for news purposes, um, you know, maybe a 16 inch Cineflex type ball. But what we bring is 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 uh, uh, 
a larger system for the filmmakers. So it's a much larger ball in order to accommodate much larger cameras and much much larger lenses that the professional cinematographers uh, choose to use for major motion pictures. Actually, it's funny you should mention that because uh, in the uh, test you did last April for Red shooting with the Epic, um, I think we had the yeah, the 24 to 290 Ongino um, 2.8 on there. But I remember somebody remarking that it was all glass, no ass. Um, but it was a huge bloody lens. That, that's right. We, um, with the new Epics and, and the other digital cameras, you know, we got all very excited that, great, we can finally make a smaller ball. Our, our gimbals are only the size they are because that's how big they need to be to, to house the cameras and lenses that the customers want to use. So when things like the Epic came out, we're like, great, we can make a smaller ball. And the first thing the DP said was, great, we can put a bigger lens on. And so we're stuck. We're, we're back to a 36-inch ball. Now, when I saw the system in LA, uh, you were set up with the, uh, I believe you had uh, on display at uh, Cinegear, dual uh, Alexas uh, in a stereo configuration because you guys have been working with uh, Cameron Pace. Is that not right? That's correct. Yep. So that's not that small. I mean, no, no offense to an Alexa, but an Alexa is considerably bulkier. And if you put two on in stereo, how does that work? Is it still fine? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the advantages of the Eclipse is that it is, um, has really beefy torquer motors. What that allows us to do is, is carry really heavy payloads that um, the older technology just was never designed to support. Um, so for these, uh, particularly in 3D, we have we can handle these you know double the amount of weight. We can handle two big Alexas. Um, now you're not going to have two 12 to one lenses. It just physically wouldn't fit, and even that would 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 go over the line of weight that we can we can handle. But in 3D, you don't want to use those big, big long lenses um, for tracking. It's just uh, it's it doesn't work. Um, yeah, I think I saw so it with it, a couple of 16 to 40s on there, uh, a pair of 16 yeah, to 40s. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of the sweet spot for uh, how you want to do 3D, anyhow. So we we kind of got lucky in that way that it it most people don't want big long lenses in 3D. So in that particular case, um, and I'll come back to some other rigs in a second, but I was really impressed because that. Uh, system that stereo system had fully dynamic interocular or uh, interaxial and convergence while shooting in flight. Right, that's correct. That's correct. That's a that's a very big deal. So on the front of the camera, on that say sixteen to forty, you'd have what three kind of I don't know are they Prestons that running the what the zoom, the focus, and the uh, exposure. Exactly. We use we use Preston drives, um, so you'd have you know f- six of them, three for each for each lens. Okay, so there's three for each lens, and then we've got, obviously, presumably, two other controls for uh, convergence and interaxial, uh, interocular. And, and how sort of wide can you get that? Because, obviously, it's physically going to be constrained, even though sometimes people want to have artificially large stuff, especially on, on um, big exterior shots. How wide can you get that? Well, when we're, for aerials, we want to stay inside the ball. Right, the outer shell. Yeah. So depending upon the lens, um, we can get out to six or seven inches okay. of, uh, of of interocular um, before you you start hitting the dome. Um, and it's really important that we keep the dome on for the speeds that most people want to go with from the helicopter. If we take the dome off, you know, we can go out much further. But obviously, you have wind resistance and buffeting and all the issues yeah. that come along with it. Now, I'm really curious about this because uh, the big problem with 
stereo, of course, is you want the left and the right eye to match as much as possible, and you need a lot of precision. If I've got a single camera, I can imagine you can do all sorts of clever things to kind of, uh, and we'll come back to that to, to get it more stable. But here you need to not only stabilize, but you need to match the stability between the left and the right. So are they treated as one unit on the gyro? Because obviously you don't want to have the left and the right bouncing independently. Exactly. So how the Eclipse works is we stabilize the entire camera platform, is what we call it. So the entire payload uh, bolts onto the stabilizing unit, the SU. Uh, And it works kind of like noise-canceling headsets. Most people are familiar with that. So what we do is we sense the vibration that's going on you know, in the air, from the helicopter, from the blades, from the wind, from everything else, and we put in an equal and opposite uh, movement, thereby keeping everything completely stable. So rather than, you know, like lenses just trying to stabilize the image, we're stabilizing the entire thing. So both cameras, both lenses, all the fizzes, all the rods, everything, and that keeps them perfectly in alignment. We're not trying to stabilize them independently because uh, that would cause the problems that you're talking about. But by stabilizing uh, everything on one uh, flat platform, it, it keeps everything in perfect alignment. Now, we can post some photos of this, but obviously, in the case of a stereo rig in a studio, we normally work with a mirror arrangement because we want to get the interaxial or interocular so uh, overlapping as to bump the lenses, so that's why we use the mirror. It, typically, of course, we don't want that on these big shots. So when we're talking about these stereo rigs, we're actually talking by side by side. I guess I should have said that. Yeah, typically. And we've, we've done some experimenting with the mirror rigs, um, keeping the mirrors themselves um, uh, from vibrating is actually uh, uh, quite a challenge. The rigs just weren't designed yeah. uh, with what we do in mind. But again, in practice, you're you're rarely that close to an object that you need to go to the um, the trouble of a mirror rig. Uh, just being in a helicopter with the blades and the wind and the noise, you're typically further away than you would need to to bother with a mirror rig, and you get back to the side by side. So it's sort of a self correcting problem. So we touched on there about some of the controls. Talk to me about what's going on inside the chopper because uh, already I'm seeing like, uh, you know, a, a veritable smorgasbord of uh, Preston controllers and stuff. What, what is it? What's the kind of typical setup in the chopper for this set of stereo rig and how many operators do you need versus obviously being able to have some room for a director or a DP to see what's going on? So for a 3D job, um, you, well, for all jobs, you have your pilot, then you have your camera operator who will be doing um, you know, the panning, the zooming, the tilting, you know, the, the steering. Uh, for a 3D job, then you probably want to add uh, the, uh, the 3D technician if you're going to be adjusting the I.O. and the conversions you know, to, be, to be riding those controls. And then uh, you know, the producer, the director, uh, whoever the creative, uh, if they don't uh, – trust the camera operator on the on their own or, or uh, need to be up there or just want to go for a ride. That would be sort of the team of four or five. So someone like Dave Arms who works for you is an Eclipse technician. You don't need Dave to go up on the chopper. You just need them, what, to set up? I mean, in terms of the Eclipse, it's contained once I take off? It, exactly. So typically we, um, well, we always send a technician on every job uh, to do the install. There's a lot of safety uh, safety concerns when dealing with aviation, so we need to make sure that everything is is properly installed and signed off on correctly. Uh, they also, you know, help set up the cameras, uh, but they rarely actually go up in the helicopter. That uh, once they get it set up, 
uh, you know, they're on the ground. If it's, you know, if it's a film job, they're reloading mags, getting ready for them to come back and, you know, play AC. Um, for digital jobs, they're, you know, getting ready to help the uh, DIT um, swap out uh, cartridges when they, when they land. So um, let's talk about that other job I mentioned, the one for the uh, Epic, because um, I both saw the footage of you guys going out, but then I've actually seen the footage itself at 5K projected uh, really well uh, at uh, Red's studios and i mean that footage the reason i mention it is because it's 5k and because i saw it on an enormous screen there was nowhere to hide and this this is the central point of your gear it's just performs really well i could not believe how that footage was looking um and of course you know this is what the uh, academy is recognizing because at the end of the day even before anything had been treated and obviously it could be stabilised and, and added to further in post, you were just producing amazingly smooth material. You must have been really pleased with that stuff. We are. And I think you really hit on an important, important point in that as we, we get to 4K and 5K and can actually project it, the level of stability is more important than ever because now you can finally see it. Um, and that wasn't always the case. Certainly wasn't the case with film because you thought, yeah, stability, uh, you know, it's just film motion. It's a bad projector. You could you could explain it away. But now that we're you know in this 4K, 5K digital world, um, the, you can see the sharpness. You can see it in the sharpness when it's absolutely stable, like we are, versus some of the older technology that isn't so stable. You can you know if you could do it side by side, you would be able you you could see the difference. One of the things I wasn't expecting when you were. Uh, I think it was a truck backing or taxing out the chopper with the rig and the the actual um, sort of dome wasn't on yet. The Epic seemed to be sort of really springing around. I mean, it was almost frightening how much it was moving inside the uh, – uh, before you were flying, of course, inside the, the setup when you were just taxing out. So there's got to be obviously a lot of movement inside the dome, but at some point um, there's a limit to what you can correct for. I guess the the high-frequency – is going to be taken care of by the gyro, is that right? And then you've got this, on top of the gyro, you've got the counter uh, mechanism working. I mean, how does that sort of lay it up? Because at some level, of course, the chopper goes up and down. You want it, the image to go up and down, but then you don't want any of the, the bouncing or the, uh, the errors. So, uh, well, what you saw was the system not turned on. Correct. Um, you know, in in flight, it wouldn't it wouldn't be it wouldn't be bouncing around. Um, they were just you know pulling oh, out of yeah, the hangar, totally. and, it w- and it wasn't wasn't fired up yet. So, uh, I guess it was just I'd never seen how much movement it was possible to do because obviously you normally see the stable footage or the dome on, mm-hmm. and it was just fascinating to see how much actual movement the rig had in it. I mean, it has a lot of actual correctable movement clearly when it's switched well, off. Yeah, exactly. It, it shows you the range of motion that we can can move the payload around in order to compensate for uh, uh, for any instability. Um, now, typically in the air, as opposed to on the ground, um, you know you're not going over potholes, so you don't have you know big six, twelve inches of of movement of the camera, you know, bopping up and down. Um, we we focus uh, a great deal on the the higher frequency uh, vibration more than shock. Right. that you deal with in the in the air. But because we're going with typically really long lenses, the 10 to 1, the 11 to 1, the 12 to 1 now, you know, any little movement uh, shows up as a big movement on the screen. Yeah, there's sort of like a magnifying effect, of course. Exactly. I mean, we're, we're stable down to, to, to five micro radians wow. uh, for, the, for the engineers out there who knows what that means. Uh, it's, it's, it's a big deal. It's... 
you just can't see it. You were flying that day, I think, on the A-Star, well, what the Americans call A-Star, um, right. the AS350. Is that, uh, is that the preferred chopper? Does it matter what chopper you're on? I mean, if, you know, presumably you can take the rig anywhere and then attach it to different choppers. Is that right? Well, the A-Star is, is the chopper of, of choice for sure um, for a variety of reasons, um, all practical. Um, it, has, it has the power to, and the smoothness to fly the gimbal and the crew. Um, it, it's rare that you have just two people going up, so you want to have uh, uh, that margin of safety. You want to have that power in order to deal with with uh, any emergency situations. Uh, so that's why the, the the bigger, more powerful helicopters are certainly the way you want to go. And tell me, what's the axis range of freedom on the rig? Like, how much can I look straight down or behind? I mean, what's the sort of degrees at which the rig can turn? Well, it can turn three hundred and sixty degrees. Um, we can look straight down. That's one of the, the unique things that we can do. We can go from looking straight forward, uh, pan, tilt, and roll straight through 90 degrees, so looking straight down. Um, and to get an idea of that, you can see the, the video on the webpage that while looking straight down, you can then roll, you can then tilt, you can pan. Um, and it's what that allows people to do is save a lot of time and money uh, in actual shooting. So one example of the looking straight down where it saves you a lot of time and money is if uh, in the typical shot where you're, you're following the, the getaway car and you have the helicopter flying along the freeway right above the car, if the pilot isn't able to keep the helicopter directly above it, i.e. the wind just sort of blows them a little bit off to the right, we're able to adjust using the gimbal and just pitch it to the left a little bit so that it appears that you're still right over the car and you haven't blown the shot. So you can get it the first take. You can get you know every take every time. Where with the older technology, um, you, you know, stop, rewind, reset, you know, send the car back, and it would it would be a long and expensive process. So a lot of the features that we have are really practical and really efficient in the production uh, process. Um, yeah, I think one of the things that people maybe not appreciate when they're thinking about helicopters is you imagine it's just a you can move anywhere in three. Uh, degrees of freedom and stop and of course you can't like choppers work best when they kind of got movement and also even the direction that they can move in isn't actually you know completely free there are much better ways of moving vis-a-vis the the air and the wind and everything else and so having this control in the in the nose mount is really critical to get the shot because sometimes it just isn't possible to to do what you might think you can do in a chopper, um, going straight up vertically, for example, is like a really hard maneuver for a pilot. Exactly, exactly. You can never take the same exact path twice in a helicopter like you can on the ground. You know, there, there's no road, there's no yellow lines to follow. Uh, so, in order to you know recreate a shot, it, it's really impossible. Um, so you can you know you practice as many times as you want, but you're never going to fly exactly the same path. You know you got the wind pushing you. You have uh, 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 you know heat differences uh, as you you know use up your fuel. You're a little bit lighter, so you might be flying a little bit higher. I mean, there's just so much going on that you can't uh, absolutely control with 100% accuracy in the helicopter. Um, so that's why we've come up with some of the additional features that we have with the Eclipse, such as the, the geo-pointing. So using you know, geo-referencing, GPS, and triangulation, we can mark a target and stay on that absolutely uh, at all times, regardless of what the helicopter's doing. And that's, uh, 
is a great time saver, um, particularly doing things like blind reveals, where you know you're coming across a mountain and you want to reveal the mansion behind it, um, because you can't take the same path twice in a helicopter. You don't always know exactly where you're at and where you know where you're going to come across that mountain, but with us, we can we can set the mark on the GPS. And using the controller, you know exactly where your target is at all times. Uh, it makes the job much easier for both the pilot and for the camera operator. Right. So it's not like a tracking feature where it's locking on to some visual thing in the picture and then correcting. It's actually working it off global positioning so it actually knows, okay, you know, I can't, I've got no idea where this is roughly to frame on, but at least I know where mm-hmm. it is in terms of uh, presumably, what, about a couple of meters difference from GPS. Uh, we're we're a bit more accurate than that. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is uh, all the stuff we're using is military grade technology. Um, it it's sort of filtered down from some of the security and surveillance uh, programs that the, the parent company PB Labs uh, works on, and we get to enjoy it here in the entertainment industry. So, if I had a car at a location and I had its GPS, how accurately could you? give that car, would you be able to say the bonnet versus the boot, or are you talking like the windshield versus the windshield wiper? I'd say bonnet versus boot. Okay. Um, we haven't needed to be you know, any more accurate than that. Um, we're not... Uh, well, no. That's a good question. I haven't thought about that. Yeah. I mean, because obviously uh, a product car shot, that's exactly what you want to be able to do. You know, know where the front of the car is and, and, uh, and aim up on it accordingly. Um, let me ask you a couple of other things, and I didn't even occur to me until I saw this on your website. You had some footage that was shot at three frames per second, like kind of time-lapse, which just stunned me. Was that just on the basis that we wanted to save stock or film? And why would you want to shoot three frames a second? Uh, and and I was surprised that you'd be able to do it and not get uh, – because that's really showing the stability of the, the rig. Well, we did it because it really shows the stability of the rig. Okay. That was something that, that – that, you know, we did for for our own demo reel. Um, you know, with with digital, it's less of an issue. But doing time lapse um, with film, which is what we did, is a really hard thing to do. So what we did was we 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 marked using the GPS the 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 target, which happened to be a radar station. We flew a couple miles away. We set the film uh, camera to three frames per second. So it was actually you know it it took us a few minutes for that whole flight that plays back in, you know, 10 seconds. Um, but it shows you how stable it is, and, and it also shows you the horizon, uh, how level the horizon is the entire time. And with older technology, it um, you would see it hunting. You would see the horizon sort of tilting uh, as, you, as you go through the shots. So that's sort of the one... Sh- um, Type of shot that shows you all the advantages that are that are of the eclipse that are going on at once. You were talking about cars uh, there a minute ago. Um, I know on the website you've got the Lamborghini spot, which I loved. That's why I didn't even realize you guys had worked on it. Um, it came out a little while ago, but uh, was that using the eclipse or was that because uh, that's an amazing oh, yeah. eclipse? That is just an amazing commercial. Yeah, no, that was absolutely the the eclipse. It's. Um, it's really taken off uh, in the uh, you know in the few years that it's been out. Um, we've gone from you know second or or, or or third choice sometimes in the production community to absolutely the first choice every time. Um, and typically, if it's if it's a big high profile job, um, we lose it because we don't have availability. So we're building more systems as quick as we can. How many systems do you have? 
Uh, number five just arrived. Wow. Um, so we're, we're kidding that out right now. And uh, let's discuss some of the films that it's been uh, you've you've had it uh, deployed on. So I think what Rise of the Planet of the Apes is one certainly. Uh, what are some of the projects that you worked on? Well, we can. Um, I'm not allowed to mention titles until shows have released. Okay. Uh, based on the studio contracts, but I can can say probably with probably few, if any, exceptions, uh, every movie starring a comic book character or superhero that comes out in the next 18 months uh, we've been on. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, but some of the other big titles that are, that are out now, Fast and Furious 5 was a big one for us, uh, Green Lantern, Thor was another uh, nice one, uh, not all action movies, we have Soul Surfer, um, uh, Hangover 2. Twilight Breaking Dawn. Uh, they used us on the, the current one and the one that's about to come out. You did uh, um, Moneyball too, didn't you? Uh, we, yeah, we did Moneyball. Now, someone told me you did. worked on the Muppets. What did you do on the Muppets? Yeah, absolutely. We did uh, uh, the Muppets. Uh, aerial shots. Um, you know, every movie needs aerials. They don't, <laughs> they don't have to be action-adventure movies. Because a puppet film doesn't immediately spring to mind. Man, we need the, you know the world's greatest uh, aerial uh, camera platform rig but um but obviously obviously they did yep yep um i just pleased that they choose us <laughs> uh, it, it you know in the end you for every movie you don't need all the the most advanced features that we offer but for the ones that don't um, because it's rock solid, because it works every time, um, and you get the shot every time, you end up saving a lot of money Can, because you're not you're not doing three, four, five, ten takes. Uh, so you're saving money on you know film stock if it's a film show, but more importantly, you're saving a lot of money on helicopter time. You know the helicopter is the most expensive thing in any aerial job. They charge a lot of money and they charge you know per minute. They have a Hobbs meter in the helicopter, kind of like a taxi meter. And when the rotors start turning, that meter goes on, and production pays, uh, you know, by the minute. So every you know five, ten, fifteen minutes, we can save production. It's a significant cost savings. Yeah, just on two technical points that I think are impressive. Your rig, from my understanding, from Cinegear. The the first of which is obviously from my point. I come from a post background, and even though we could stabilize something in post, any um, high frequency judder that causes uh, anything that would be noticeable on screen is a huge motion blur problem for us because literally the f- it, once we stabilize it, if we can stabilize it and assuming we can, it basically goes soft because of that. So one of the things that I guess most people don't necessarily consider is that you're providing not only stability but sharpness because while we could sort of track out some instability, we wouldn't be able to track out the inherent blur that that has produced in the frame. So you basically give not only a stable platform but a very sharp platform effectively to your productions. Uh, exactly. And as we said before, as we these 5K cameras come out, um, you, you can finally see the difference. And the second thing is it seems to be, from what I can gather, uh, you've managed to get it very responsive. Because the other problem, if we're not targeting, is that obviously you don't want a system where there's any kind of real lag because the, the amount of uh, tactile responsiveness between the operator and the camera is absolutely vital. And I understand that you've got that really, really down well. Yeah, we spent a lot of time and effort on the on the steering. So, I mean, st- stability is a given. You have to be absolutely stable. Um, no question about that. But where you really get 
the, the top operators on your side is the steering modes that is absolutely responsive. It's very crisp. There's not slop in it. So it makes them, you know, their jobs much easier to get the vision that they're trying to accomplish. Um, you know, we, the uh, technicians focus on the level of stability and the technology that goes into it, but it's the user interface that really makes it a successful product with the people that matter, and that's the aerial camera operators. Well, look, we really appreciate you taking time to talk to us, and congratulations again on being uh, recognized by the Academy. It's obviously well-earned, and uh, thanks also for all the cool shots I've got to witness that you've managed to produce. Thanks, Mike, and uh, you know, I hope to talk to you again after the summer when we can talk about some of the... Uh, the other big blockbuster movies once they finally come out. We'll definitely take you up on that offer. Thanks so much, man. See you. Thanks, Mike. Well, that was uh, that was sensational. Thank you. Uh, I just love the idea of um, having two cameras up there, being able to just shoot stereo. And obviously, you're not talking about a rig here that's side by that's you know beam slit or anything. You're just talking about cameras side by side. And but don't you love the thought of having the six Prestons and the interocular so and the convergence? It's a real mindfuck up there. You're trying oh, to fly, coordinate action, um, so think about fun. interocular focus, zoom, exposure, and operate, and uh, you know talk to a pilot, which is essentially your grip or your dolly grip, and yeah. uh, that's fantastic. The ability to do once these things get stable, and I've seen it with the, um, you know, a lot of West Cam stuff, is that you have this fantastic. Once you have something really smooth and uh, controllable, you have this fantastic ability to undercrank to the point of not or to undercrank a little bit, like six frames or whatever, and just be absolutely caning it across. Be doing doing eight doing a thousand kilometers an hour doing a counter track with a car that's creeping along the road at five kilometers an hour or whatever you can do 360s around a car at 20 feet off the deck because the car's going 10 kilometers an hour and you can speed it all up because everything's so smooth yeah and uh or actually i think you mentioned they were doing time lapse yeah three frames a second i do like the gps targeting though being able to have a spot on the ground say focus on this gps target even though we can't see it even though it's on the other side of a mountain I want you to yeah, right. GPS target this dot. So when I come over the mountain, and I happen to know that's where the car is. Yeah, in fact, in that interview, reframe. he said he could get it as accurate as the bonnet versus the, versus the arse of the car with all this military spec stuff they're doing. Very cool. Deserving of a side tech award. And uh, that's the first, as I say, of our Oscar interviews. We'll be doing them all this month in the lead up to us going to the Oscars in February. So we hope that you'll um, yeah join us each week for those because they'll be really, really good. Awesome. So, we need to do our RC slogan competition. We do. And give away our copy of Sony Vegas. Finally. And thank you, everybody who submitted. There were some, 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 some brilliant ones. There were some uh, insane ones. The RC, obviously a rat hole. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear. There, there was quite some... a few comments about rat holes. Now, with there 30% was. more rat holes was another one. There's some insane ones. But uh, the uh, winner, Mike, is... Uh, well, can I just joke about some other ones? Okay, go Lights, on. camera, rat holes. Yeah, right. Cutting edge, cutting edge digital cinema rat holes covered. I mean, <laughs> That's a big hat. RC, where rat holes rule. <laughs> Do you don't think that that's like, there's just like a bit of a theme developing here? Like, yeah, like There was a couple I actually didn't even get, I've got to tell you the truth, that maybe they were just... Well, there was one that it took me hours to get, right, which was more pate. 
I did, never got that one. Well, I finally twigged it in a podcast that I did on um, Scorsese. Scorsese would come out of the tent and say to the stereographer, don't skimp on the pate because he wanted it to be more and richer in terms of the stereo. Right. And somebody picked that up and jumped between the FX podcast and the RC podcast and made it more pate. It took me a long time to decipher that one. That is inside baseball. I, th- I think the one that was suggested that just said we should have RC, obviously, <laughs> was just like slightly young. Yeah, thanks. But anyway. <laughs> um, yes, now look, there are lots of ones we could do, but in the end we came down to deciding it based on, because there really were quite a lot of really good ones, um, we were decided on what we would actually like to have on a T-shirt as opposed to what was the cleverest in-joke based on the podcast. Does that make sense? It's a slight difference, actually, if you think about it, because if you know the podcast really well, then some of these jokes kind of make more sense. But if, if you're walking around with a T-shirt that says, obviously, a rat hole, it's, it's kind of like, am I going to want to wear that? Well, maybe I would, but yeah. <laughs> that's just me. <laughs> So we, we wanted to go for something that um, that actually was pretty much something that people... So we actually asked a spontaneous group of um, our peers, uh, cinematographers and DPs and people that we really liked. And Jason, the winner was unanimously pretty much, certainly your first choice, and I think it was in my top three. Yeah, simple, and I think it sort of hits the nail on the head, which is fix it in camera, which I like the idea, just the concept of, you know, get it right you know at when you're shooting and not uh, and not have to fix it later so we are going to be uh making up t-shirts and caps that have fix it in camera and the winner jace who gets a uh copy of sony vegas is a new zealander brendan rich thank you brendan so congratulations to you and look thanks to everybody that um that sent stuff in there were some really um obtuse ones there were some actually ones that i really wanted to put on a t-shirt but i don't think they're appropriate my favorite actually one of the ones that i really like that's not appropriate is is actually came from stew who said glass who gives a shit about glass (laughs) was that a quote or was he just making a anyway um yes so right because yeah he cares he couldn't care less what glass yeah right he's, he's spent nothing on lenses um but look we we uh we love them all raw fluttering genius flutting genius anyway um so, yeah, so that, that were great. And we really appreciate you guys contributing and kind of having 80 of these submissions to go through was just a pure joy. So Thank you. In fact, so, some yeah. of these I'm sure are going to get uh, other use elsewhere. I don't know how yet, but um, if I do, uh, R is for unicorn. was like particularly obtuse. <laughs> that one really. <laughs> what? R is for unicorn. Thank you, Pass, what? Oh, the uni- unicorn camera, I guess. C300 and stuff. Anything obscure? R is for you. Anyway. Yeah, okay. Anyway, um, so that's great. So like, thank you so much for that, guys. Okay, so we just got one last bit of gear tech to do, which is uh, first of our CES announcement. We'll probably have more of these next week, Jase. There's a new Lacey hub converter connector thingy coming out. Yeah, this is sort of real. I'm, still, I'm struggling to find the I put this in use. because you tweeted bitching about the fact that there weren't more Thunderbolt. Well, yeah. Because there isn't. Yeah, what okay. The fuck? You know? So anyway, uh, so I have on my desk a Thunderbolt Raider drive, so I'm pretty yes, happy. Yes, you do. Yes, very good. Impressive. This Friday... Not exactly portable, though, is John it? Montgomery arrives from the US of A with more Thunderbolt gear, but this is a Thunderbolt to ESADA connector thingy, 
And this is really important because what we're trying to do with Thunderbolt and what we're going to be talking about next week is how to, when John gets the stuff here, is a really fast way of connecting up a red uh, eSATA reader, card reader, to a laptop in the field to get very fast stuff from your SSDs to a portable device in the field. Yeah. Which is exactly what we both want. In, in the absence of a Thunderbolt. No, no, but it's not just in the absence of Thunderbolt, because even with Thunderbolt, you still have to get... Like my laptop that I've got, you've got as well, doesn't have an eSATA slot. No, that's right, and does not have the three-quarter express slot, which they got rid of. So I have You have to have the 17-inch. What I want to do is, my my dream, my aim, this time next show, is to be able to say, okay, I can stick my SSD in here, and it super fast copies this to that. Yep. And So you'd be going SSD, hang on. But you're always you're still limited. Yes, it yes it gets you. You're still limited to the speed of ESATA though, which is less than Thunderbolt, right? Less than Thunderbolt, but vastly better than, than Firewire, Firewire 800. 800. Sure. And we'll time it for you. We'll actually give you the specs. But we use ESATA. We've used ESATA in the field up until now um, on laptops that can take them. But the trouble is, where do you then put that? Because you don't want to leave it on the internal drive, so you then put it back out to a Firewire 800, and you get a bottleneck there. So it matters not only where you're getting it from, but where you're putting it to. So I want to spec ESATA to Thunderbolt, and I want to do that this week, and I want to get back to everybody next week on next week's show to do that. Yeah. Trust me, that's what we want, right? You okay. and I both want it in the field. Yeah, but you're not getting... So what, what we've, we've, I'm not even sure whether this is actually a picture of it. It looks a bit like the back end of a hard drive at the moment. But the, the upshot is that Lassie have announced an, an eSATA to Thunderbolt kind of hub, I guess you can... And I'm presuming, you know, it's going to be bi-directional thing. Um, but, you're, but you're getting a different piece of kit. Yeah, your yeah, your, getting, your gear tech um, drug pusher enabler guy who's, who's yeah. I think what you meant is my, my best mate. <laughs> yeah. So John, okay, I'm just jumping. I'm, I said I wasn't going to do this, but I will. John's coming out with we hope cross fingers the Echo Express Card 34 Thunderbolt adapter. Ah, right. Okay. And other things. I'm not going to like steal yep, all okay. of his thunder. And uh, yeah, so he's got other cool things coming. Other cool things. And they will allow us to um, uh, do really, really cool stuff. Okay. Well, that'd be good to see the deal. I mean, uh, I, what I, I still cannot understand why there's just so little Thunderbolt shit out there. I don't get it. That that you know that was all stuff that we saw announced at uh, yeah. There's one other thing before also, NAB, actually, but at NAB there yeah, was a ton of There's one of other people. thing that John's researching, which is related to this actually, is not only all of that I just described, but also having. Um, you know the SSDs that are in some of our laptops? Mm. You've got an SSD in yours? No, some of our laptops. Yeah, some of our laptops. Mine. No. Yeah, more technically them. courageous of us. No, I, I go for size, not speed. Right. Anyway, John's found a RAID. Well, I'll, let him, I'll tell him about it next week. But yeah. it's a RAID drive enclosure SSD cool piece of tech. A raid, an SSD put its weight. raid. Okay. okay, put it this way. John Montgomery, cool. apart from being a stylish individual, yes. is a tech god, and he's very good at identifying this stuff. Yeah. And he has, uh, if customers let him get into the country, a bag load of tech smack 
that he's bringing in for the RC for next time. Then he arrives on Friday, so we'll get on the next show. Excellent. So listen in for all of that next week. And our next in our um, our Oscar interview lineup uh, as we work our way through the SciTech Awards. Jason, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Friday. Thank you. Have you enjoyed oh, I've your got this great other bit of gear, this really good experience. label printer thing to talk about? <laughs> no. Label printer, so. Have okay. you enjoyed your um, podcasting in the pod? It's been sensational. Very, very relaxed. Very comfortable. Well, okay, if you want to comment on our relaxed uh, podcast this week, or in fact anything else, we are, of course, on Twitter and elsewhere. I'm uh, Mike Seymour on Twitter. I am Wingrove. And uh, we're going to do our Twitter shout-out. Um, Coming up on, obviously, the 19th to the 29th, and that's how I use the word, obviously, then, of January, uh, is Sundance. And I just want to do a Twitter shout-out to Blue Tongue Films because uh, Bear is into Sundance, our film, uh-huh. done with director Nash Edgerton. So a big shout-out to Nash, and congrats on getting to Sundance. Of course, it got into Khan, so we're pretty proud of that one. Um, and that's our Twitter shout-out for the week. And I'm not, while we're talking about directors, I'm not going to do a blog shout-out. I'm actually going to do a podcast shout-out. Um, a new one that's firing up, which I um, may or may not be involved in in the future, uh, may or may not be guesting on, uh, Spotcast. Uh, Ron Small's doing, um, I guess, something I wanted to kind of do, but he's kind of beat me to it. He's actually speaking to commercial directors and talking about craft of doing it, and he's just t- he's just spoken to Thomas Richter, who's a fantastic uh, um TVC director, and also Adam Lissagor, who's um, Lonely Sandwich, who I had no idea was a director in his own right and, you know, creator of uh, some really interesting um, sort of branded media and uh, TVCs. Hmm. So, yeah, spot, search on iTunes for – there's links in the show notes, but search on iTunes for Spotcast or, and or Ron Small. And, um, yeah, who knows? Excellent, yeah. excellent. So you wanted to do that – like as a whole different podcast in addition to this one? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to... I would thought of having the conversation with other directors and, you know, picking their brains about how they do what they do and how they, you know, their approach to stuff. And well, look, I wish that podcast all the best, but I, I just have one piece of advice, <laughs> just slightly cynical, which is whenever somebody comes along, and quite often people do, and say, wow, we've got this killer Great thing. new podcast. I go, tell me when you hit 50. When you hit 75, if yeah. you're still there doing 100, then I'll... Because it's easier to start a podcast. It's much harder to keep it going. Mm, it is. Very... Um, I can also do a bit of a yell to Ed Moore, because Ed's been shooting on um, uh, yeah. do shout Red out. Dwarf in London. I mm. couldn't do Red Dwarf because of various reasons. Um, absolutely, they were very nice in asking me back, and I would have loved to have done it, but I couldn't. Ed, however, who I did shoot with, uh, with Doug Naylor in London is on Dwarf. He's been Twittering as Ed Moore. Well, he Twitters as Ed Moore with two O's. And um, he's been uh, operating on uh, Red. And also he's appeared in some of the Red Dwarf um, leaked, officially leaked behind-the-scenes videos. Yeah. Looking kind oh, of I haven't seen any of those yet. That should be yeah, cool. Yeah, no, they're good. And he's been uh, shooting Steadicam and doing stuff. Yeah. They've been shooting with Epics. Um, now we should definitely, and I'm sure we will, Mike, when this is all done and wrapped and in the can and we can talk to them, we should talk to them and with Doug and Ed and all those involved because it's a really interesting workflow that they're doing this time, very different to last time when you shot Yeah, Red we Dwarf shot Red Ones. Uh, you shot Red time. One but single camera or, you know, just well, more of a single. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't uh, not multicam studio, multi-cam which is studio, what they're so, doing. Yeah. Yeah. And Bobby Lou, who obviously Robert Llewellyn is um, 
is a very popular Twitter person. Um, in fact, he's got 75,000 followers, mm. something like that. Um, Bobby Lew, so Bobby L-L-E-W. Yes. He's also been um, sending some stuff out. Like, look, the stuff looks great. I spoke to Doug. Um, he said it's going really well. And uh, audience reaction has been really good from people posting stuff around the net. So good luck with that, guys. I hope it goes just gangbusters. It won't be coming out until later in the year. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah. And yeah, it does from, you know, from what we know, it's a really interesting approach to shooting it this time around. But we like all the people involved as well as obviously the, the guys that are behind the show. And, and so, all, um, yeah. And so having fun doing it too, which is half the battle. Good guys. Mm. Studio audience, multiple cameras in sync will be interesting. Mm. Epic multicam. Has that been done before? Uh, studio, live, studio, when we did the sitcom, Red multicam, epic. Switch, original switching. back to the to Earth stuff, there were people going, there's no way you'll pull this off on Red. It's going to fail. It's going to be a disaster. Yeah. And it was awesome. Um, but we shot with 5Ds with Doug and Ed on a different project. It wasn't anything to do with Dwarf. That wouldn't have worked. Um, yeah. So it was interesting, and it'll be interesting to discuss with them when we can um, their decision on how they ended up with the epics, and uh, and why it was. So. Yeah, I wouldn't have been my first choice. No offense to Epic, etc. But for for the way they're going, you know, the classic multicam kind of. I want to say sitcom, but it's not a sitcom. But you know, it's getting back a bit more to the original shooting approach of the earlier earlier series. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really the epic doesn't you know come to mind as the way to shoot it, but hey, well, I yeah, like, I, like, I can't I like talk about thinking. that. But no, it's good. I, I have yeah, I can't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> but later we'll talk about it. Yeah, let's do. Alrighty, thank all right. you, thanks guys, thanks all, appreciate. And from uh, we'll the podcasting you. pods, we bid you. I feel like I want to say Nanu Nanu. I'm just like I'm in this friggin' Mork from Mork spaceship. It's Until <laughs> <laughs> next time, guys. See ya. See ya. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.